We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. This edition is a little different. I was invited to interview my witness at an international conference which takes place every year in Berlin called Mansein, which translated literally from the German is to be a man, and is dedicated to help men grow and evolve to face the challenges of the 21st century. In the show notes and at the end of the podcast, I'll give details about how to find out more and perhaps attend yourself. Due to the pandemic, the 2001 conference took place virtually with questions from the audience texted to me. My witness for The Meaningful Life is Warren Farrell, who has been described by GQ as the Martin Luther of the men's movement. In the early 70s, he was elected three times to the board of directors of the National Organization for Women. He started groups for liberated men, one of which was attended by John Lennon. Later, Barack Obama asked him to chair the White House Council on Boys and Men. Warren Farrell's books have been translated into 17 languages and include The Myth of Male Power, and the book I will focus on, The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It. But before we talk about that, I asked him to take me back to the 70s. What made him get involved with the women's movement and ask men to walk a mile in their moccasins? I was was teaching at Rutgers University in New Jersey, and I was teaching in political science, which is where I got my PhD. And I was starting my dissertation, and I was always integrating into my talks the importance of what was happening in the women's movement as a political movement. And my students said, you know, Warren, when you talk about the women's movement, you have fire in your belly. Why are you doing your dissertation on grants and aids, which is what I was doing it on? Right after that, I was appointed assistant to the president of NYU, and I went to my dissertation committee, and I said, I'd like to change my topic to the politics of the women's movement and its ability to have an impact on men's attitudes and behavior. And they said, oh no, Warren, the women's movement is just going to be a fad. It's here today and gone tomorrow. You have a lot of potential. You should focus on something that is more serious than that. And I said, I really disagree. I think the women's movement is part of an evolutionary shift. Now, for the first time in human history, a lot of nations are beginning in the upper class and the middle classes economically to master survival enough that they're going to care about something more than surviving. They're going to care about freedom. They're going to care about liberation from the old rigid roles of the past, which were necessary necessary for survival, but they're going to want, once they have survival somewhat mastered, they're going to want to have more flexible roles for their future. And because I'd been appointed assistant to the president of NYU, they didn't argue too much, but they rolled their eyes and said, all right. And so that got me involved in the beginning of the research. Long story short, the board of the National Organization for Women saw that I was interested in this and they asked me to run for their board. And when I was elected to their board, I started to form a lot of men's groups around the world. And that led to what you had mentioned in the intro where one of the men's groups were uh, right after I finished organizing it, John Lennon joined the group. And when he introduced himself to me, I had such a lack of recognition of anything musically that I spent an hour with him before I knew that I was speaking with John Lennon. And so it was kind of a funny thing, but that was the part of my background that got me into being interested in the women's movement. And so what would happen in these liberated men groups? Well, two things that I found pretty quickly that were absolutely essential. 
One was that nobody dominated the group. And so I started to develop ways of making sure everybody's check-ins were limited, that no one could dominate the group. The second was confidentiality, because so much of what we wear is we have to be strong. And if we feel feelings of weakness or insecurities, the fear is that somebody will go out and talk to other people about it. And then our reputation as being able to be a future CEO or author or whatever the makeup ladder is that we use to make up the gap between the power we have and the power we'd like to have is ruined. And so that becomes a great deal of fear. And so the third thing I'd say is that the groups meet frequently, at least once every two weeks. Otherwise, it doesn't really work very well. The group that I'm working with now that I'm part of myself, we're continuing our meetings over Zoom all the time. And now we're just getting ready to go back to live meetings again. So I get the picture that you were welcomed into the women's movement at the very beginning. Oh, yeah. Not only welcomed, I was sort of their token male. There was a lot of criticism of the women's movement that they were anti-male and lesbians and bra burners and things like that were some of the early criticisms. And I was sort of held up as proof that here's a man who understands us. And so I was sort of, I guess, the leading male feminist in the world for a number of years. And that worked in a lot of different ways. It worked for the women's movement. It worked for me. You know, I was on every major TV show in the country and everything I wrote for the New York Times was not only printed, but they often asked if they could take an overlong op-ed piece and turn it into two op-eds. They liked it so much, things like that. I was asked to speak at, to teach at universities before I had my PhD and before I um, wrote my first book, which is in total contrast to what's happened since I've been speaking up on boys and men's issues. I haven't been able to get any more op-eds in the New York Times. All the places that used to hold me up as being the ideal are pushing me away and not responding to me. Conversely, though, very interesting because part of my research found that boys do so much better when there's a significant amount of father involvement. Conservatives in the United States have sort of made me into their hero. And uh, so I'm now this sort of feminist that is now popular among conservatives because I understand the importance of fathers and I understand the importance of families in a way that I never did before. And that just evolved from my research. It was just like undeniable. I always felt they were important. I just never had a clue that they were as important in more than 50 areas of development for boys and girls, but especially for boys. So you were the poster man of the women's movement. There wasn't such a thing as a men's movement at all at this point. That sort of is correct. For all practical purposes, there wasn't. But I was feeling that there would be a men's movement that would emanate from the core of the consciousness of the women's movement. And there was, but it was a feminist men's movement. So all of our issues were issues that were focused on what feminists felt were the important issues. And what that missed is there are at least 10 major issues and maybe 50 or 60 more minor issues that are issues that boys need to focus on that lead to boys being the mass shooters, the ones that commit suicide, the ones that have depression that isn't even recognized as depression because we don't have ways of identifying male depression. The reason that boys are dying on drug overdoses much more than girls, becoming obese more than girls, having sperm counts that have gone down 60% in the last 30, 40 years, whose IQs are dropping. These are all things that are happening to boys that 99% of Americans 
Americans and most people around the developed nations don't have a clue. And, and you know, to say nothing of the fact that boys are falling behind girls on every single academic area, especially reading and writing. And there are reasons for that. And what I discovered when I did the research for the boy crisis was A, what those reasons were and what dads do that is different from what moms do that lead to children doing so much better when they have what I call checks and balance parenting. That is a non-argumentative tension between mothers and fathers about recognizing the, the dad style parenting contributions and the mom style parenting contributions. So, I mean, there's a huge amount there that I want to unpack. I'd just like to unpack your own journey a little bit more before we start going into that. And I was wondering, what was the moment that tipped you off and made you say, hang on, men need to think about their own stuff rather than actually focusing on women's stuff? Was there a a eureka moment or something that happened? There were a lot of eureka moments. I think the first one came from getting to know the value of fathers. And therefore, if there was a value to fathers, there has to be something that allowed boys to feel like heroes or feel really worthy of being able to attract females, being able to attract respect from other males, being able, if they were gay, to be respected by their gay male partners. And so these were some of the things that sort of first came up. And the first hint for me of this was the Patrick Moynihan report, popularly called the Moynihan Report in 1965, done by a fellow who was a U.S. senator and a sociologist and advisors to both Republican and Democratic presidents in the United States. And he started researching what was causing crimes in inner cities. And this was 1965. And people were really afraid, like, oh my goodness, he's going to find out that it's blacks that cause crimes. And this is going to end up becoming a huge racial issue thing. But he found out something different than that, which is that it was only in the black families where there was minimal or no father involvement that almost all of the crimes came from children of those what I call dad-deprived families. And that was 25% of the African-American community at the time. To put that in perspective, at that point in history, 1965, it was only 3.2% of the Caucasian community. And so he found that in that 3.2% of the Caucasian community and in the 25% of the African-American community where there was minimal or no father involvement, that was where the crimes were happening. That was where boys were going off track. And so I started looking into what were the reasons for that and why was that? And so when in the 70s, when I was involved with the women's movement, I was on the board of now in New York City from 1970 to 1974. And so somewhere toward the end of that, around 73, 74, I started seeing that the early data on children of divorce in the 70s, which was happening at a much higher rate then, the early data was showing that the children of divorce who did not have a significant amount of father involvement that they were having many more problems. The data wasn't there to show more than about 10 or 12 problems. Now we see between 50 and 70 problems, depending on how you define it and where the overlaps are. So I mentioned this to my board of director members at the National Organization for Women in New York City. And it was like I had thrown cold water on myself. The group sort of looked at me with eyes that I had never seen before. Before it was always like praise and admiration and respect. And now it was suspicion. And they said, you know, Warren, do you realize that when women divorce, they want to make sure that they join now in part so we will support them 
and they will not consider themselves supported if we're saying that fathers should have equal rights to be involved with the children as mothers do. The mothers feel that they know the children the best and they'll do what's best for the children. And if they have met a new man that makes them psychologically happier and they want to fly you know, a thousand or so miles away, had a new job, a new community, that's probably a better community, a better job, have a better life that the children should be able to go with them. And I said, you know, that really makes sense. But there's a problem with that, which is that, you know, everything I'm able to find is that the children do best when they have about an equal amount of time with the biological father and the biological mom, not the stepfather and the biological mom. And so they said, well, you know, you said yourself, Warren, that the research is still in its infancy stages. We don't know what's going to happen longitudinally. I think you're wrong, but why don't you keep researching it? And remember, Warren, that your support comes from us. You've become famous because of feminist referrals. You've received a huge amount of money because of feminist referrals. Just sort of maybe keep that in mind. And remember that the feminist movement has a lot of things it needs to do. It's not just custody issues. It's, you know, pay gap issues. It's women in sports issues. It's a dozen other issues. We have to be politically strong in order to be able to do that. So we can't be losing women who could be supporting us because of just custody issues alone. So just keep that in mind. Well, I was not so stupid that I didn't see the handwriting on the wall, but I made at that point a decision that I would do the best I could to do the most honest research and be outspoken about what I found, no matter where it took me. And that did take me from doing 50 some odd speaking engagements a year down to zero to one speaking engagements a year and took me away from being chosen as a MacArthur Genius Grant Foundation and other scholarships and things like that and got me knocked off almost all the TV shows. But it was really something I felt was important. Important to do. So let's move specifically on to the boy crisis. There was a sort of a moment which you sort of thought that you had to write about boys when you were at a dinner and the host asked, if you were born today, what would you rather be, a boy or a girl? Now, what was the response of the people around the table? Yes, we had at the table one famous feminist and three other people, one that identifies very strongly as a feminist, one who's a college professor at UC Berkeley, and uh, my wife, who's more of a moderate, and myself. And three out of the four of us said we'd rather have a girl. And it wasn't because we preferred girls necessarily. We just felt that it was going to be a lot easier on a girl slash woman, that the future is female. And that boys today go into school and they learn that you know men are part of the privileged class, the pressure class, and particularly if you're white, that you have white male privilege and so on, and that it was really going to be much harder for boys today to grow up successfully. And then I started doing research on a broader level and found that, in fact, that was about what 70% of parents felt that if they had to choose between a boy or a girl, they would not prefer a girl for themselves, but they felt it would be easier for a girl to be born today and a better life for her than it would be for a boy, even though the father said, oh, you know, I'd be able to do more roughhousing with a boy and I'll be able to, you know, get in there and teach him how to do this and that. And felt visualize himself having more fun with a boy and enjoying the parenting process himself more with a boy. He nevertheless put that as secondary and the fact that he would want his children's life to be better as primary. Is there really a boy crisis? There is really a boy crisis. Um, Explain to me, what is the boy crisis? When I started doing the research for the boy crisis, I found that in all 53 of the largest developed nations, boys were falling behind girls in every academic subject, but especially in reading and writing. And reading and writing were two of the biggest predictors of success or failure. 
I then started looking at data from uh, the UK, actually, that did studies on the IQs of males going down by 15 points on average. Also, the sperm counts were going down by 60%, but there were a lot more things happening. Boys, as I was mentioning at the outset, were much more likely to commit suicide. So, for example, at the age of nine, boys and girls rarely commit suicide. And when they do, it's equal. But between the ages of 10 and 14, as boys begin to sort of feel the experience of their testosterone and the social expectations of their role, boys are likely to commit suicide at twice the frequency of girls. At the ages of 15 to 19, four times the frequency. And at the ages of 20 to 24, five times the frequency of girls. Then it levels off to about four times the frequency. But the important thing is that very few people paid much attention to this. The funding for suicide research is almost completely still to this day on how girls commit suicide, even though boys commit suicide, it levels off to about four times as much until boys and men become older. And then it goes way up for males compared to females. That's just one of many examples. Boys are much more likely to be obese, to die from overdoses of drugs, to be addicted to video games, to be addicted to video porn. The mass shooters in the United States, aside from our addiction in the United States to guns, the other single biggest aspect of mass shooters was being male and being dad-deprived males. The school shooters that have committed the most school shootings in the 21st century that have committed 10 or more, all five of those have been dad-deprived of boys. The way you lay down all the evidence, you know, you have me convinced So why, as a society, are we so blind to all of this stuff? It's startlingly obvious that we need to look after the boys as well as the girls, but why doesn't everybody see that? It really is astonishing. The arguments that I've made, and then I'll get to why we don't see them, we need to value dads, not just for dad's sake, but really for the children's sake, not just for our son's sake, but Girls, daughters also do better in 50 different areas. Third, I was married for quite a while, and then I was single for a while before 27 years ago when I met the woman who became my wife. And almost all the women I went out with were single moms. And the word I heard most frequently from single moms was the word overwhelmed. They were overwhelmed. They were working as hard as they could at their jobs, but feeling that they didn't have enough time to do their jobs at the level of success that they really wanted to be. They were frustrated there. They were overwhelmed with the amount of time that the parenting took. However, they also felt they weren't as good parents as they wanted to be. They felt guilt on both levels, shame on the level of not succeeding as much as they have potential for, and guilt on the level of not taking care of their children as much as they wanted. Well, what's the solution to that? The solution to that is get fathers to be involved with mothers and share the burdens of parenting and the joys of parenting equally. But instead, we've made fathers look like fools and people who are incompetent. And when a guy went up to a girl he was attracted to and said, I'm thinking, about becoming a full-time dad, the woman would maybe she'd disappear and maybe refer a reporter at the party to him for an interesting story, but she wouldn't come back for a second drink. And the guy felt like, you know, having a focus on being a great father was very secondary. It was, you know, that Lois Lane did not care about the sensitive, caring Clark Kent. She only cared about Clark Kent when he realized he was Superman. And so the young male experienced that if he was going to be 
father involved as a primary focus and sensitive and caring and a nurturer connector, that girls were you know, going to say that they really liked that, but they wanted the Superman first and those types of nurturer connector skills second. So then the next part of your question is, you know, why don't people see this? You know, here, father involvement is really good for women. It's good for fathers. It gives them purpose and it gives them joy and it gives them their most meaningful experience in their life, most probably. And third, it is vital. I mean, literally vital for children. Good for society as a whole. So we're all going to win from this. So yes. why are we blind to it? I think we're blind to it, if I can go deep here, is because historically, biologically, every animal from insects right up through human beings, the female fell in love with the alpha male. So for example, among buck elks, the female fell in love with the alpha male and reproduced with the alpha male about 85% of the time. So all the pressure was on males to have the biggest rack, if you will. And so among buck elks, the female would reproduce with the male buck elk that had the biggest rack. But what no one understood was that to get that big rack, you had to deplete 30% of your nutrients, minerals, and calcium to get the biggest rack in the group. So the moment you reproduced, if you didn't get rid of that rack right away, by doing something that the buckel calls rutting, you are likely to die before the winter season set in because you wouldn't have an opportunity to fully replenish your nutrients and your minerals. And so the metaphor there is that what we see is that men's weakness is our facade of strength, but we all got our love from being willing to be disposable and create that facade of strength. And so we were loved by being disposable And that created a fundamental psychological dilemma. Our parents wanted us to live, but yet they also wanted us to do the things that would risk our disposability. There was sort of a tension there. And we can't get psychologically close to somebody who we feel may be disposable as we can to somebody that's going to be with us for the rest of our life, our daughters. And so I feel that that since our survival, the survival of women, children, nations, was dependent upon males being willing to die, it was against our own survival instincts to care about men living. Because if we had a nation of conscientious objectors who were unwilling to kill and be killed, we ourselves would die. And so I think that's the deepest stuff that's going on, not only among humans, but among other animals, if less consciously among the other animals. You're listening to a special edition of The Meaningful Life, recorded at the Manzine Conference in Berlin with Warren Farrell and questions from the virtual audience. Our next edition will be our 50th, and to celebrate, I've invited the man who I turn to when I need help, Jungian therapist James Hollis, who has written many books which I recommend on this podcast. It will be the first time I've met him, and I can't wait to share his wisdom with you. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. 50 episodes is a good time to remind you about my supporters club. It costs me a significant amount of money to create this podcast. I'm an independent podcaster, and each week I dip into my own pocket to pay for production, engineering, and technical support. I believe I'm creating something special here. 
a weekly support capsule of ideas about how to lead a more meaningful life, and I'm in the process of creating a community to support this goal too. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, please support me by becoming a patron. Details of how to gain my eternal gratitude is at www.andrewgmarshall/podcasts. Now back to Warren Farrell. Somebody wanted to ask a question about something you've already mentioned, Warren. Why is the difference between a father and a stepfather as far as male energy is concerned for the children? Very important question, and it's a really important question that I cared a great deal about because I'm a stepfather to two daughters. You know, we all have our biases, and so the bias that I had for my research was to find out that stepfathers were just great. <laughs> for uh, my wife, felt I was a caring, loving stepdad. I think she married me partially because of well, I think significantly so because of that. And so I had to admit that in my research was a desire to find the importance of stepfathers, and both in my own experience and also what I found was that. The biological father is significantly more important to the child and has a deeper impact on the child's outcome. And so, there's a few reasons I think for that. One is that the boy looks in the mirror, and the girl looks in the mirror and sees not the stepfather, but sees that half of its genes are the biology of the father. That is, it sees the nose of the father, it sees the eyes of the father, it sees the hair, the body language of the father, and therefore, on some level, if the father is being criticized, if the mother, particularly in a divorce, situation, for example, is saying, you know, I divorced your dad. I'm really sorry about that. But, you know, I found him to be terribly irresponsible and he often lies and he's a narcissist and so on. And the child is looking in the mirror and saying, maybe I'm a narcissist and, you know, et cetera, and beginning to fear the challenges. It needs to know who it is. So for example, my wife in a former marriage adopted a child and we invited that child to dinner after I came back from speaking in New Zealand. And this fellow from New Zealand came over to join us for dinner and he was a rancher. And I said to the rancher, what's a typical day on the ranch or one of your highlights? And he said, I think my highlight is we had 12 ducklings that were born recently and their mother and father were both killed. And I saw this chicken take over the raising of the ducklings. And it was just fascinating to me. And then one day, these ducklings were old enough to be able to waddle out of the barn and they went down the hill and there's a lake at the bottom of a hill and all the ducklings just jumped right into the lake and the chicken went absolutely berserk, like you're going to drown type of thing. <laughs> and my stepdaughter, my wife's child from a former marriage that was adopted, she said, huh, that's the way I feel every day. I feel like I'm a duckling being raised by a chicken. And that was really a metaphor for what I have seen and what the data showed me in the Boy Crisis book was so powerful that, yes, I was a stepdad and I cared. And every single day I talked to my wife about what we could do to make the lives of our daughters better and better and better. But when it came to shove, I was the advisor. That's level one was the biology of it. Level two is the positioning of a stepfather. So my advice to Liz, my wife, was oftentimes like when one of our daughters would come up and say to us, you know, I'm really anxious and I'm afraid I'm not going to get this homework done on time. Mom, what's the answer to this question? And Liz focused on her work because she had to support the children economically and seeing that her daughter was stressed out would give her the answer fairly quickly. My attitude was, you're not going to get the answer quickly from me. I'm going to work you through you figuring out the steps you need to take to be able to discover the answer for yourself. My wife, the woman who became my wife, 100% agreed with me. 
But her protector instinct about her daughter being stressed came into play and she couldn't get it together to be able to say, you're going to have to cry. It's not going to be okay for you to just have an answer to the problems. It'll create more stress in the long run. And so there was a tension between the two of us. And even though Liz agreed with me, her protector instinct just led her to not being able to really execute on that. And I was only as good as an advisor. I could advise and give insights and talk about the data from my studies, and she would agree with that. She even sent the first draft of the Boy Crisis book to her former husband, and that had a positive impact on him being more involved with the children. But long story short, we as stepfathers are usually only as good as advisors. The biological mother tends to make the final decision. And so those two things about the biology of it and that are two of the many things I talk about in the Boy Crisis book about why the stepfathering doesn't tend to be as powerful as the biological dad. Now, one of the things that you talk about at the heart of the boy crisis, and I would say this is something that's equally important for us grown men as well, is the purpose void. I mean, men need a purpose. I would say actually women need a purpose as well. We we all need a purpose, right? In particular, it's incredibly important for boys. So talk me through why boys need a purpose. It almost seems like it's the number one thing a boy needs. Absolutely. First of all, girls have built into their biology a purpose option, and that purpose option is to be a mother. And now they have three options. If they're middle class and above and they're married, they've discovered that they're pregnant. I remember going around to many dinner tables in liberal New York City when I lived there. And then in San Francisco, near where I live now, for all the liberal and openness, when it came to the mother being, woman being pregnant, she was usually, most of the people I hung out with, the woman had successful jobs. And the dialogue was, oh man, do I continue this job full time? If I continue it full time, do I cut back? So my hours from 50 hours a week to about 35 hours a week, but I'd still be a full-time worker. Or do I take off for a few years and take care of the children full time? Or do I do some combination of both? So she was basically had three options, work full-time, children full-time, do some combination of both. And the guy would sit around there and just would be ready to support whichever option she took without sort of articulating it this way. Oh, you know, I have three options too. Option one is to work full-time. Option two is to work full-time. And option three is to work full-time. The third option was to work, take two jobs. Yes. If he's a working class man, usually two jobs. And if he's an executive type, work more hours. So just to give a, a concrete example of that, if he's, let's say, a, a salesperson in a local area and he'd love to spend time with his children, but he realizes he'll make twice as much money if he's a national sales rep and he starts working to become that national sales rep. But becoming that national sales rep may double his pay, but it also quadruples his time away from his children. So, so many fathers are caught in the father's catch-22. They learn to love their family by being away from the love of their family. So, women have their purposes, and we've expanded their possibilities. What we've done with men, though, is in the old days, men had two forms of purpose. One was to be disposable in war, and the other one was to be directly or indirectly disposable in the workplace by being a full-time worker, feeling obligated to earn all the money of the household, and then usually dying sooner in the process. But nevertheless, 
being able to walk around and saying, you know, I am Dr. Warren Farrell, best-selling author of The Boy Crisis, with my purpose being doctor and best-selling, and my status being doctor and best-selling, and that being also my male makeup, because my doctor and best-selling was compensating for the makeup I had. So you're so either a provider or a protector. Those were the two options. Exactly. So the good news is that today, with fewer men dying in war, there's less pressure for men to be the disposable protector of killing and being killed at war. There's more option for that man to grow up in love and be loved. And secondly, with women sharing more of the burden of finances, there's not so much pressure on him to put all his time into earning a lot of money, although there's still a lot of pressure for men once they have children to do that. So the good news is the pressure is taken off today to a greater degree. But the bad news is that there's a purpose void unless a father and mother are working with the son and the daughter, but especially the son, to develop new forms of purpose, to develop, to find out what their unique self is. And then not only discover their unique selves, because moms are very good at helping sons identify their unique selves. But the reason children do so much better in achieving their unique selves, if there's a dad involved, is that the mother will identify the child's gifts and encourage the child, let's say, to try out for music or for the basketball team because he's tall. And then the boy, oftentimes raised by mom alone, will usually not have the discipline and the postponed gratification to do all the basketball practices every single day and extra and or practice for being an Olympic gymnast or for being a musician, all that takes discipline. And dads are much more likely to say some version of, we'll pay for your gymnast instructions. Well, we'll pay for your basketball tutoring. We'll take you to your basketball practices. But in exchange for that, you've got to do the discipline of actually showing up at practice, practicing extra time at whatever your gift is at music or piano. And if you don't, we're not going to do our side of the story. Whereas the mother is more likely to look empathetically at the child's being exhausted from doing too much practice and say, okay, you can do, you know, you can do more of, the, of what you want to do. And the, the people who do more with what they want to do they have a more balanced childhood, but they don't fulfill their dreams. And so oftentimes that's one of the differences between the dad-style parenting and the mom-style parenting that leads to children being much more likely to achieve a new sense of purpose by discovering their unique talents and desires combined with having the discipline to fulfill them, which happens most frequently in a, in a uh, checks and balance parenting situation. So Oliver asks, what can I do as a public school teacher to help boys become healthy, strong men? And there's a sub-question to it is, and what kind of school system would it take? But let's focus on what he can do, and by extension, what all of us can do to help boys. Yes, I think the biggest thing that can be done is to start something like a male teacher corps where you are not the sole male elementary school teacher or if you're if you're an elementary school teacher and that's where it's really dangerous and hard because you're probably only one of a small number of males in that system and you know one of the things that feminists found is that if there was only one woman in an executive group it was extremely hard for her to speak up so one of the things we need to do is do something like develop a male teacher corps where the government creates scholarships for males who will train to be teachers 
and serve and dad-deprived neighborhoods and school districts so that our sons have multiple male role models. I'm a nurturer connector male by nature, but it's important for our sons to have both nurturer connector males and provider protector males so they can choose from a variety of role models to be part of. That's on the larger political level. But on the smaller individual teacher level, you can do things like this. One of the experiences that I do with a lot of groups is to say, what was the glint in your dad's eye? What gave your dad a feeling of happiness and fulfillment that when you saw that in his eye, you really saw the dad you just loved and you could feel the love and the relaxation come out of him as opposed to the expectation to criticize you. And so capture that glint. And then imagine later when your dad had children, whether um, he was able to do the things that created the glint in his eye. So maybe he loved roughhousing. And could he roughhouse full-time and create a living for you? Maybe he loved to fish. Maybe he loved to create art or have hobbies. Maybe he loved to golf. Maybe he loved to do wonderful, caring types of things like tell stories or tell jokes or be nurturing um, and so on, being like an elementary school teacher. Um, Could he make a good living doing that? And when the children were born, did he give up doing what created that glint in his eye and do something that earned more money that created less fulfillment? And that helps every girl and boy in the class see that this is not a world of male privilege. It's a world where men have made contributions that we have distorted as privilege because oftentimes part of our contribution was the obligation to earn more money. And instead of saying to our dad, thank you for fulfilling that obligation so we could all have opportunities you never had, we criticize him if he succeeds and we criticize him if he fails and we we leave dads in a catch-22. Second, make sure that every discussion in your class has people hearing that discussion and the opposite. So divide your class into two groups and say, how many agree with this and how many agree with that as a starting assumption, for example. Maybe you'll have 20 kids in the class agree here, five kids in the class agree with the opposite of that. And then have the kids first argue their own perspective and then argue the opposite perspective so they hear other points of view. So you're not seen as a teacher taking the male point of view. You're seen as a teacher helping people hear everyone's point of view, that you're creating an open mind with an open heart. And very few people will be able to criticize you for helping people hear each other better. Those are two, I have a number of suggestions like that in the Boy Crisis book, but the most important thing is to to teach people and parents how to create family dinner nights that are structured in such a way that they don't become family dinner nightmares, that are structured in such a way that allows everybody at the table to feel heard and understood rather than interrupted and lectured to, so that those family dinner nights become the most exciting night of the week rather than the most dreaded night of the week. So take us through this, because this is one of your central ideas. And I think it's a wonderful idea, by the way. How does a family dinner night work? Step one is making sure that the children do not have any electronics at the table. Parents often come up to me and say, well, that's a great idea, Warren, but how can I do that? And the way you can do that is by being a parent. By being a parent, I mean saying that there's no option but to not have the electronics at the table. You can either leave them in your room by yourself or I will take them and not put them in your room, 
I will take them and confiscate them, put them in the safe, you know, for X amount of time, not a long period of time, because you never want to make a punishment too big, but a short period of time. And so you make sure it's clear that you are the parent and you have the control over the options. And if she or he starts complaining about that, then there's no ride to a friend's house, then there's no dessert, then there's no other things that the child will eventually give up in exchange for having a dreaded hour without his um, electronics or her electronics at the table. That's number one. Number two is you make this process really interesting. One of the reasons that the electronics are so much more fascinating than the parents is because A, the parents are oftentimes not willing to discuss controversial topics like politics, like race, like sex at the table. And second, when they are discussed, when the child says something that the parents disagree with, the parents will often interrupt and explain why the child is wrong or why would they want to think that way? Why would you want to be exposed to Jimmy who, you know, smokes marijuana or gets drunk all the time? You know, why not get involved with Billy who doesn't do that? And so the child feels like it doesn't have a chance to really open up. And when it does open up, not only is it interrupted, but if they're completely heard, no one says, let me see if I've got this correct. Let me see if, not sarcastically, but really trying to say it in a way that allows the child to say, yes, that's exactly what I was saying. And the child says, no, that's a little distorted from what I was saying. And then he clarifies or she clarifies, not saying, no, no, I tried to say that. That's what I was trying to mean. Just repeating it until your child says, you've got it right. Thank you for getting it. And then when you ask your son or daughter, is there anything else you would like to say, your son or daughter will feel uh, safe safe to say something that's more controversial because she or he heard that you could handle anything without interrupting. But then you're also training your son and daughter to do the same thing for their mom and dad. You're training your son and daughter to understand that life is not about you as the parent being empathetic to the child only, but it's also the child being empathetic to the parent. When empathy is a one-way street, what you get is not empathetic children. When empathy is a one-way street, you get spoiled, self-centered, narcissistic children because they think that the only feelings that count at the table are theirs. So it's so important for empathy to work both ways, for listening to work both ways. And as a marital therapist, I think it would be really good for your marriage as, as well as for your children. I buy entirely the fact we've got a boy crisis, but I think what we have is an elder crisis as far as men are concerned, as much as a boy crisis, that if there's something wrong with the kids, it normally means there's something wrong with the adults or the elders. I think in particular the elders, you know, you and I, you're 77, I'm 62, we're both elders, but our culture is actually turning us all into kid adults that we don't want to grow up. We can't help our sons if we're still boys inside So how do we actually look after the boy inside of us? Yes, first of all, very accurate. And second, when I was uh, first doing the um, research for the Boy Crisis book and I wrote my first draft, my publisher said, you know, there's too much in here about men. This book should be all boys. And I said, you can't separate boys from men. Boys become the men that they see around them. And it was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> it was like just the fact that I had to say that was pretty overwhelming. But uh, anyway, inside of every man is an enormous desire to be loved. 
And of course, it's inside of every woman too. But when a woman isn't loved, she goes to her women friends for support. She has children for support. She goes to family members for support. This is all not just common sense, but it's also heavy database. In the United States, among educated women, college-educated women, 90% of the divorces, 90% are initiated by the female. And so there's something happening inside of men that isn't working for men and isn't working for our wives. And because we can't speak easily about our feelings and our pain to other men without feeling like the man will lose respect for us, we depend on our wives. But our wives are also biologically associated with wanting to respect us and respect comes from the denial of our real feelings. And so we're sort of caught between many rocks and hard places here. And so the most important thing I've found is the last 30 years, I've done couples communication training uh, work with couples. And the most important single thing is that we learn how to hear our partner's criticisms and pains and concerns without becoming defensive. That is, historically and biologically, when we heard criticism, our fear was that that criticism might be from an enemy. And so it was functional for us to get up our defenses, to be able to defend ourselves against a potential enemy, or alternatively, to kill the enemy before the enemy killed us. That was wonderful for survival, but it undermines love. And so it's all of us. When we love somebody, we feel vulnerable. When we're criticized by somebody with whom we feel vulnerable because of the amount of love we have from them, we fear that we're going to be deserted by them, abandoned by them. So we want to make our case while our partner is making his or her case about what they're having problems with. And that, and yes, I know as a marital therapist, you know this like 100%. And so what I've done with the couples communication course is to say, because it's biologically unnatural to be able to hear personal criticism from a loved one, you can't just do this with active listening. Because active listening makes only the person who is giving the criticism feel safe because their partner is repeating what they say. But if you really want to be safe as a criticizer, you have to make the person hearing the criticism safe first. So your first job is to emotionally meditate into an altered state where it's safe for you to hear the criticism because you're associating creating a safe space for your partner's criticism with knowing inside of yourself that the more you create that safe space, the more your partner will feel loved by you and therefore the more your partner will love you. But that's not a natural meditation. That plus six other mindsets that I train couples to do all come before a partner shares what his or her concerns are. They all come only at one time during the week. When you set time aside for that, what I call a caring and sharing time, you learn how to structure the rest of your week to create a conflict-free zone and then maintain that conflict-free zone and share your major concern, only one major concern a week, but you don't share it until your partner emotionally engages in a way of knowing that the better she or he creates a safe space for your concern, the more likely you are to feel loving toward them. And so it becomes a two-way safe space. What I explain in that is that the, the person giving criticism is never really safe unless the person hearing the criticism feels safe also. 
And so what about looking after the boy inside? How do we look after him? Because when we're overwhelmed, he rather comes up to the surface. So how do we parent ourselves? Absolutely. Number one, I'd say, is by knowing that on an everyday basis, when you feel your partner can hear you and that pain and that abandoned boy without feeling like, oh, gosh, I married a boy, not a man. I fell in love with the man and the boy emerged. You see, what I'm yeah. rebelling against a little bit is <laughs> that is us taking our, for want of a better word, crap, and asking our wives and women to sort it out. I would like to think there's another option than burdening women with it. I don't know, but I would like to think that I could do something for me. I mean, I definitely want men to do more things together, but I definitely think there must be something we can do to look after the boy inside rather than saying, wife, look after my little boy. I mean, I'm going to be a bit outspoken. That's a bit pathetic, really, isn't it? No. But I completely agree with you. A, it's not pathetic. I'll explain why in a minute. And B, there are other things besides your wife, but I wouldn't put it as burdening your wife. I'll be more specific about that in a moment. Just I'll go to some other options first and then come back to that option. So one of the reasons I started 300 men's groups is because it really is helpful for men to have a confidential environment where you can see what other men in the group are going through. And it's only when men hear other men get in touch with that boy inside, get in touch with that hurt part, that danger part, that you not only do a favor to yourself by opening up, but you also do a favor to every other man in the group who doesn't feel so lonely, isolated, and shamed of himself when he opens up. And the more everybody in that group opens up, the closer the group feels, and the more of a nurturing environment, which is why a lot of these men's groups have lasted 20, 30 years, and ones that disobey the confidentiality or the one male dominating rule usually don't last very long at all. So that's one thing you can do. Number two, you can go to a good therapist and you can read books on these areas. It's manly to read books about what's inside of you rather than be afraid and not have the courage to go inside of you. But now let me get back to the sharing with your wife. Remember, you're not just unburdening to your wife. Your wife is unburdening to you. And so both of you are creating a safe space for you to discover portions of yourselves that you didn't even know were inside of you. The job of good listening is not just to hear the, your partner, but it's to create such a safe space for your partner that your partner discovers feelings she or he didn't even know they thought. Every woman has these feelings too. They have more permission to discuss them, but when a man is a really great listener, and knows how to facilitate her, the abandoned child inside of her comes out. The child that wanted to marry the secure man or whatever she discovered in you that was important to her, whatever she discovered in you that was important to her has many dimensions to it. Some are very positive and some are a shadow side. If she wanted security, she may have traded off somebody that she was more attracted to for that security. But fearing ever saying that to you is something she protects from but hides inside of herself and maybe just tells to her women friends. Having the security of being able to share that with you as you share the things that are similarly fragile for you, those are things that create a deeper and deeper bond. My wife and I are quite different in our basic personalities where she's quite Christian in her orientation. I sort of have my own 
independent religion that I've sort of created for myself. It's a little bit more like Buddhism. And so it's quite different from each other. But being able to discover what created her desire and need for being a Christian and her discovering what's inside of me, the strong parts and the weak parts, those are the things that bond us together and create a deeper and deeper love. And all of that is so unnatural to do because the normal process of seeing somebody suggest they have a problem is for we as guys to try to solve that problem because we want to be that protector and provider. And the last thing you want to do for a woman or a man who's expressing a problem or a challenge that they have is to provide a solution for that. You need to provide a space for that to be fully developed and then let your partner know that you've heard that fear accurately and then invite your partner to share more and more of it, even if that involves criticisms of you. Now, so Oliver asks, do you think the current war between the sexes will end or will it get worse? Both. Well, I think it'll never completely end. Males and females are quite different. And I think the closest we'll ever get to ending it is, I hope, doing the type of communication I just was talking about there. But certainly it's going to be a while before it ends because we have institutionalized this women good, men bad. We've institutionalized hashtag me too as a monologue, not as a dialogue. It takes teachers like the teacher who asked the question a few minutes ago to create the structure for kids learning how to hear perspectives they don't want to hear. When I spoke once previously at Northwestern University in Chicago, I required that I did not speak per se. I required that there be two podiums on the stage. One was Dr. Warren Farrell, feminist. The other one was Dr. Warren Farrell, masculist. And I debated myself on stage. I ran back and forth between the two podiums, which I you know, kept very close to each other, so it wouldn't be too bad, and interrupted myself and put myself down. It was a lot of fun. And when the audience was divided into two parts, one was the part that basically felt feminist in perspective, and the other part uh, was the part that didn't feel very feminist in perspective, felt that, like men were undervalued. And then I had each person in the audience, and when they asked a question, they had to ask it first from the perspective that they were sitting on. And then I required them to think that question through from the perspective of the person from the other side of the aisle, and then do the arguments from each side of the aisle. And my point to the students at Northwestern was that it's important to not come to a debate because a debate, when you come to it, leaves you almost always leaving that debate more convinced of the perspective you had when you walked in there. Really important debates are having not two sides to a story, but multiple sides to every story inside your own mind so that your mind can sort out and work not just the two sides, but the multiple complexities of every side. So I did not want them to walk out of there just hearing two sides. I wanted them to walk out of there by inhabiting both of those sides inside their psyche. I've got another important question. This one's from John. If you had to pick one, what is the most important element we need for a brighter future of men? So you're allowed to have one thing for a brighter future for men. And actually, I'm going to answer that question as well. I'd be interested to see if we come up with different or the same answer. I'd say developing the type of listening skills I've just talked about, because then boys and men will feel heard. And it won't be boys and men's turn. It will be boys and men feeling heard as girls and women feel heard. 
It will be people of every gender, every preference, sexually, and so on, being able to be heard. And it won't just substitute boys as the next generation for for another group. This, this problem is with Israelis and Palestinians in the United States. It's with Republicans and Democrats. It's with employers and employees. It's with parents and with children. It's interesting you think it's listening, and I think that we've come to the very same conclusion, but I think it's we've actually got to know our feelings better because we can't speak and we can't be heard if we don't know what we want to say. And what we want to say is tied up with our feelings because our feelings give us clues for that. Oh, my goodness. I would 100% agree with that. And we also have to recognize that we're human beings who don't want to be rejected. And so creating an atmosphere where the feelings we do have will not lead to more rejection from women, more rejection from our parents, more rejection from our brothers and sisters that will enter us into the cemetery of friendships if we disagree with somebody on something. All of that has to work together because we have to make it safe. Men have to have the courage to speak up even when it's not safe, but we also have to create safety for men being able to express those feelings because we've only Basically, all the things I said about the biology of this, of women falling in love with the alpha man, means that we have millions of years of evolution from insects right on up to us to make it unsafe for males to share the feelings and fears that are inside of us. Warren, thank you very much for being part of this extraordinary conference and for inspiring us today. Thank you for asking great questions, for fielding wonderful questions and listening so well. You must be a great marriage and family therapist. I'm looking very forward to getting to know your work better too, Andrew. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed my interview with Warren Farrell. Thanks to Manzine for inviting me to interview him and giving me permission to release this podcast. There is more from the interview for members of my supporters circle. Why not join and listen to the bonus content for this and every one of my podcasts? If you would like to attend next year's Manzine conference, it is in Berlin on the 11th and 12th of June. Don't worry, everything is in English or simultaneously translated. Some of the guests already booked include Dr. Robert Glover, who's famous for writing about the nice guy syndrome. The show notes has more details of the Manzine conference. Let's finish with more information about how to support this podcast. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Collick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.